Mark chapter 8. If you're new to the valley or new to rockfish, what we like to do here is work through books of the Bible and see what God has to say to us there. We believe that the books are written divinely by the Holy Spirit, inspiring regular men and women just like you and me to write the words of God. So that when we read the Bible, we are reading the word of God itself. And so our hope is to figure out what the author's intent is and the main idea of the text, make it the main idea of our message, and then soak that into our bones and meditate on it throughout the week so that we might grow up in the Lord and become and practice who he's declared us to be in truth. That is righteous and saved by grace through faith. And so we turn to Mark chapter 8 this morning. We're going to do verses 27 on down through 38 if we make it there. If not, uh, we'll pick up where we left off. Um, Our text today is actually the climax of the first eight chapters, and so the first half of the book you kind of have this idea or this thing going on where everybody's kind of curious about this Jesus and who he is, and Mark perpetuates that a little bit by bringing up something called the messianic secret. People kind of figure out who Jesus is, or he'll heal somebody and they'll be like, this is amazing, and he'll say, but don't tell anybody, keep it a secret. And, and we've, we've addressed that in large part in past sermons. But basically, it's just not time for everybody to know that Jesus is the God-man yet. And so there's this kind of secrecy going on, and we'll see a little bit in our text today. But this first eight chapters are going to climax in Peter's confession here. He's going to say, you are the Christ to Jesus. He's going to identify who Jesus is. But even Peter's confession today is only a partial confession. He sees Jesus as a Messiah, is what that word Christ means. Literally, it's anointing. Only with the confession of the centurion, after Jesus is dead, when he breathes his last, the centurion will complete Peter's confession with the words, surely this was the Son of God. So really, Peter's whole confession, the whole confession of who Jesus is, is that he is the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God. And so we are learning, we're coming to the end of chapter 8, and the next eight chapters are going to reveal to us the kind of Messiah that Jesus will be. In our chapter today, Jesus says two things. He says, I am a king, but I'm a king going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross also. You see, he's a king with a cross instead of a crown. As you might expect, this announcement of Jesus' is, uh, is not really well received. Those that are following him are not expecting to follow him into death at this point. In fact, they think he's going to be a conquering hero king, and we'll talk a little bit about that more later. So his, his announcement that he's going to die in the future and that those that must follow, that want to follow him must die to themselves also, it's not, not really happy about it. He illustrates uh, this point in his rhetorical questions down in verse 36 and 37. Uh, he, he, said, he asks them, uh, what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and lose his life? And the answer is, is nothing. What can a man give in exchange for his life? And the answer is, is nothing. Yet the, the questions in this text leave us with the same statement that Paul makes in Philippians later. Help us to realize that to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
this fact was made evident to me as I uh, read a, remembered an old Newsweek article I had come across. Uh, it was published on April 17, 1998, when Linda McCartney, that's wife of the Beatles, Paul McCartney, died. See, Newsweek concluded its article on her death by saying, the McCartneys had all the money in the world, enough to afford their privacy, enough to give them a beautiful view. But all the money in the world was not enough to keep Linda alive. I don't know if if Miss McCartney knew Jesus or not, but the way that Newsweek concluded its article on her death led me to ask Jesus' questions. What does it benefit a man to gain the whole world but lose his life? And what can a man give in exchange for his life? You see, all men must die, but Jesus tells us, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. He says the one who denies himself, takes up his cross and follows me, will live. All of us will die. This year could be your year, this day could be your day. The question is, will you live and die with the world, or will you die and live with Jesus? How you answer that question will ultimately depend on how you answer the first question Jesus asks in our pericope today. He asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And so that's, I'm going to rephrase that question and have you hold it in your mind as we work through the text. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? How you answer that question will reveal where your heart and your mind are set. Whether they're set on the things of man or on the things of God. See, those who wish to find deep satisfaction and enjoy eternal life must set their minds on the things of God, on Christ himself. And so I exhort you this morning in our one big thing or the one big idea to hold up next to that question, to set your minds on the things of God. Set your minds on Jesus. We're going to work through the text in three parts, Jesus' person, Jesus' purpose, and Jesus' requirement. Jesus' purpose, Jesus' Jesus' person, Jesus' purpose, and Jesus' requirement. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your grace this morning. We need to experience your continued touch in our lives that we might see more clearly who you are, recognize more readily your purposes, and understand more submissively our part in the story of your love for the world and the spreading of your glory throughout its every corner. Father, give us wisdom. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to listen well to your word. Father, help me to to preach with excellence and to, to be your mouthpiece with faithfulness. Let us enjoy the deep mysteries of your love to us in Christ. Lord Jesus, let us rejoice in the good news that you have reconciled us to yourself, that we live with you, and that one day we will be made like you. Lord, we look forward to your return. Amen. So Jesus' person, look with me at verse 27. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? 
And they told him, people say, you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus asks the disciples this same question twice. Who am I? Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And the disciples respond with those familiar answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, prophet. While those answers reveal that the people around are holding Jesus in the highest regard, that that perception of Jesus is still woefully inadequate. You see, to consider Jesus simply among some of the greatest figures of Israel's history, or as we might hear today, to regard him as just a a great moral teacher, it might seem complimentary, but it's ultimately an insult to him. Because Jesus is unique. He's far more than just a good teacher. He's one person with two natures. He's fully God and fully man. He's the God-man. To regard Jesus merely as a great person, it, doesn't, it just doesn't go far enough. Those who think of Jesus this way, as, as merely a teacher, merely a good moral example, grant him a, a, a golf clap when they owe him their whole lives. They grant him, yeah, that's good, but I'm not going to follow him. They deny the truth of his identity, and consequently, they ignore the gospel itself. So answering the question, who is Jesus, with a great teacher, a great man, or a great prophet, well, it reveals a lack of faith and a lack of understanding. So the people around the countryside haven't figured out who this Jesus is. Herod, like much of them, thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected. But who do the disciples say that Jesus is? And Peter, speaking on behalf of them all, shows that they understand part of who Jesus is. They understand that he's the Christ. The disciples, like the blind man in the previous text that we worked through a couple weeks ago, uh, are starting to see, but they're seeing blurly. Their vision is clouded. They can see the shape of it, but not the whole picture. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, they're right about that, but he's not the Messiah that they expected. It's important for for us to be clear on this point. Calling Jesus Messiah here doesn't mean calling him divine, let alone the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Mark believes Jesus was and is divine, yes, and he's eventually going to show us why, but this moment in the gospel story, it's about something else. It's about the politically dangerous theologically risky claim that Jesus is the true king of Israel, the final heir to the throne of David. As we mentioned earlier, the word Christ literally means anointed one. And because kings were traditionally anointed with oil as a kind of a coronation, the word Christos became pregnant with all kinds of implications. To say someone was the Christ was to say that they were the Messiah or the king to end all kings. This would be to claim to to be the king that put everything right. That's who Peter is saying Jesus is. At this point, the disciples are not expecting a divine redeemer. They're expecting and longing for kind of a a conquering hero-type king. 
a little bit like David, a king that will come and overthrow their enemies, prosper them, and bring glory back to Israel. And, and it is true, Jesus is the king to end all kings. He's overthrown humanity's greatest enemy, and he will put everything right. But he is not at this point, and, and he doesn't become this conquering hero king that they expect. And quickly upon Peter's confession, he quells any thought of a revolution by telling the disciples to keep quiet. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but not the Messiah you expected. Be quiet. Don't tell anybody. At this point, Jesus must remain hidden in order to accomplish God's will. You see, Jesus has his mind set on the things of God. He won't allow expectations of him taking Rome as a warrior to get in the way. In fact, he's not going to wear a warrior's sword at all. But instead, he'll wear a servant's towel and wash the feet of others. He won't seek vengeance for his people, but sacrifice himself for them. Jesus will not wear a crown as he marches on Rome. He will only wear his crown after he has gone to the cross. It's at this point, as we go into verse 31, that Jesus begins to teach the disciples the true meaning of Peter's confession, what the Messiah actually looks like. He's giving Israel or the Jewish people's picture of the Messiah, he's kind of giving it a facelift. He's showing them how it really looks. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus' first important statement here is the Son of Man must suffer. Now when we hear Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, we often assume that he's saying, I'm human. It's just like a merely human title, but the title means much more than that. In the prophecies of Daniel, there's a reference to one like a son of man. It's a a divine messianic figure who comes with angels to put everything right. But Jesus says the son of man must suffer. These two don't go together. Like never before this moment had anyone in all of Israel thought that the Messiah would suffer. And there are, of course, many texts about the the mysterious suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah and elsewhere. But they've not yet been associated with the Messiah. So the notion that the Messiah would suffer made no sense at all. Because this king, this anointed one, was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything in the world right. How would a Messiah be able to put everything right by suffering? It it doesn't make sense. In fact, it's a a little bit insulting. To say that Israel's Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the Son of Man, the one that's going to put everything right, has to die? That's why we're going to see Peter confront Jesus in a second. Note, too, here the word must. Jesus must go to the cross. There is no other way. God's plan is different than what anyone expected. He's going to suffer and die and rise after three days in order to secure eternal well-being for those that by faith trust in him. Jesus must die because of our sin or our wrongdoing, because of your sin, your wrongdoing. See, our sin and wrongdoing is against God. It separates us from God. It fractures our relationship with him, and it, it harms our relationship with one another. 
and sin demands payment. It's a payment we cannot provide. It would be a little bit like if uh, I had a really, really nice car. Um, I saw Tulsa is the most expensive car now, and so it's like, a, I don't know, 100 grand. It's really expensive, out of, out of my price range. Uh, and it would be as if I, uh, I borrowed um, Keith's uh, missionary, so he clearly has lots of money. And so Keith has a, a, a Telsa. It would be as if I borrowed his, his, this sweet Telsa car and rode it around and, um, you know, uh, things get a little bit, maybe I'm in East Asia and traffic's a little crazy there and, and I run into to somebody on one of those electronic bikes and I total his car somehow. Well, I can't, I can't pay back Keith for the car. See, two things have to happen for restitution to be made. He would have to... Um, call his insurance company and they would have to provide it to him, I would have to pay for it, or he would have to take the loss himself. Forgiveness always costs something. Keith being a good guy would likely just take the loss himself and, and, and let it go. Our sin demands a payment we can't provide. Jesus dies in your place and makes the payment for your sin. And it's a payment that you cannot provide yourself. Trying to, uh, to stick with the car analogy, which is likely really bad, but it would be as if you were trying to replace the Telsa with, uh, with my Chevy Trailblazer, right? The, the value is going to be a little bit different. Jesus can die for you because he is a perfect man. It's without sin. You cannot pay the price on your own. For you to live, for us to live, Jesus had to die. As Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I do want to point out, this isn't a magical view of love, of, love, of blood in Hebrews. Rather, the term blood in the Bible means more, it's a, about life. It's about a life given or taken before its, its natural end. See, a life given or taken, even now, is the most extreme gift or price that can be paid in this world. Only by giving his life could Jesus have made the greatest possible payment for the debt of sin. Jesus' death was not only payment, however, it was also a demonstration. I love what Edwards writes here. It says, The prediction of Jesus' passion conceals a great irony. For the suffering and death of the Son of Man will not come as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people. No, the suffering of the Son of Man comes rather at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. It's not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its absolute best. Our best deeds are as filthy rags before him. The death of Jesus will not be the result of a momentary lapse or an aberration of human nature, but rather the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who will justify their actions by the highest standards of the law and morality, even believing themselves to be rendering a service unto God. Jesus is not lynched by an enraged mob or beaten to death in a criminal act. He's arrested with official warrants. He's tried and he's executed cross reveals the world's best men and the world's best systems of justice fall short. Often are corrupt. Instead of serving justice and truth, 
that which is good and right. The world serves itself by seeking power through oppression. In fact, I don't think it's too far to say that in condemning Jesus, the world was condemning itself. All people, even those we consider to be the best people, do wrong, love sin, and are separated from God. We all need a rescuer. We all need Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus' death demonstrates not only the bankruptcy of the world, but it it also reveals to us the character of God and his kingdom. See, Jesus' death was not a failure. By submitting to death as penalty, Jesus broke its grip on him and us. Jesus breaks death's toll by living a perfect life and dying a perfect death. We deserve wrath, and he takes that wrath for us. We deserve wrath. He deserves riches. He takes our wrath and gives us his riches. We don't deserve the love of the Father. We are wasteful. He gives us common gifts. Everything we have is from him. All that is good is from him. And we waste it in worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping him. We are all wasteful sons and daughters who in our rebellion take the Father's good gifts and wish him dead. We find ourselves unsatisfied, unworthy, and in a field with pigs longing to be fed. Yet God reveals himself to us, draws himself to us, causes us to seek him, to come home. Yet before we can get to the point, the porch, he reveals himself to be the true seeker. He seeks and saves the lost. He runs to us and puts a ring on our fingers and his robe on our backs. Instead of giving us what we deserve, the Father gives us what only the Son deserves, himself. Jesus secures our fellowship with the Father on the cross. At the cross, justice and mercy kiss. They hold hands. See, the law of men is corrupt. The cross displays this to us. But it also shows us that God's law is pure. We see the world loves itself at the expense of others, while God's love denies itself for the benefit of others. Jesus died so that God might rightly punish and end sin without ending us. Jesus has risen victorious over death proved that the shedding of his blood was an acceptable sacrifice and that those who like him lose their lives and follow him, place their faith in the Father and submit to his will, they also will be raised as he is raised and saved into perfect peace with God. See, there's power, power in the blood of the Lamb. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. I'm not done yet, but I would like you to sing that chorus with me. I'm not a good singer, so you're really going to have to help, or it'll be really awkward with me singing by myself. 
There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Isn't it beautiful how songs teach us? Carve that melody on your heart. Go throughout this week. There's power in the blood. He saved me. Who is Jesus? He is the God-man. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah King, man's rescuer. Your rescuer. He is our God, our King, our lover, our friend, our life. Jesus is making known his person and his purpose here. His person is to be the divine Messiah King, the rescuer of all humanity. His purpose is to give that humanity life by way of his death. Don't you know he lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died? So that by faith you might trust in him and rise from the dead as he rose and be forever with God in perfect peace and bliss. Let me ask you, have you trusted Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? God's plan for the suffering Messiah was far greater than the disciples could have imagined. But at this point, it seems ludicrous and wildly offensive for the Messiah to die. You see, the disciples have their minds set on the things of man. Thus, Peter rebukes Jesus and speaks to him in the way that he had previously spoken to demons. The language is the same. Verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter and the others were ready to be part of a military conquest. They were ready to enjoy personal and national glory. They were on board with Jesus as the Messiah who conquers and who leads them into Rome, leads them into glory. They were on board with him that way, but he's not that Messiah. They're not on board with the Messiah that needs to die. Peter rebukes Jesus because the disciples don't have a category for a suffering Messiah. They don't want the suffering Messiah. They want the conquering hero king. And so here Peter speaks with the devil's voice. You see, just like Satan at the temptation in the wilderness, Peter offers Jesus a crown without a cross. Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus does. No more. Peter thinks he knows better than God does. Isn't that the root of all sin? We think we know better than God. And so we act in accord with what we think is best rather than what he has told us is best in his word. Peter and the others want a Jesus that they can control. They want a God that fits their agenda. Peter's going to tell Jesus the kind of Messiah he needs to be. And so he's attempting to reshape and redefine Jesus to fit his conception. Don't we do this? Aren't we guilty of this? 
every time we sin, because every time we do something opposed to God's design, we declare ourselves smarter than God and promote our agenda rather than God's agenda. But we know better than he does. And it's because we have our minds set on the things of man rather than the things of God. Friends, let me ask you, how have you attempted to fashion Jesus after your own likeness? Does God sometimes look eerily like the person staring back at you in the mirror? How have you tried to control God? The exhortation here is to turn from your sin, admit God is smarter than you, submit to his will, and set your mind on the things of God. I also want to point out, anyone that pursues their agenda rather than God's is in league with Satan. Jesus requires his followers deny their agenda and pursue his. He requires his disciples to put down their crown, whatever your treasure is, whatever trinket you're looking to for satisfaction rather than Christ, he says put it down and instead pick up a cross. Die to yourself and put your eyes on me, not on that silly crown. He requires his disciples to set their minds on the things of God. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. Uh, John Piper, who I love, comments on verse 38 says this, he says, what's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? But being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving to be identified with them. Verse 38 makes me think, this is maybe, maybe you did this too, I don't know. Uh, does, do you remember your early teenage years? I'm talking that awkward phase, like the preteen, you're not quite a teenager, you're not quite in the single digits yet, and you can't drive. And so if you're like me, or if you're not like me, you probably know somebody that is like me, uh, you, you remember a time uh, where people did something I like to call the two-block walk. You're meeting friends at the movies or the mall or the bowling alley or, or something to that effect. Because you can't drive, your parents have to drop you off. And so to make sure that you look cool in front of your friends, I must have been the only one that did this. Y'all are like, what is he talking about? I said, Mom, no, drop me off over here. And she's like, the movie theater's two blocks away. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to get out here. I'm gonna, I need some fresh air, some exercise. I'm going to walk. Do this because it was considered by others, maybe, and definitely by you, it was considered uncool to be seen with mom and dad. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. If you can't ride with me all the way to the movie theater because you're embarrassed to be identified with me, then I can't drive you at all. That's what he's saying. 
Are you embarrassed of Jesus? Of course not. Many of you just thought, I know, because I'm a mind reader. Not really for anybody that's like, what is this guy think? Is he crazy? The tear, of course not. Of course not. I'm, I'm not, never would I be embarrassed of Jesus. I want to ask, are you sure? Have you really died to your old life? Have you really denied yourself and picked up a cross? How can you be sure that you've lost your life for Jesus' sake and the Gospels? How do you know that you have denied yourself and followed him? I think first things first, that's going to depend upon how you answer the question, who is Jesus? Have you truly believed and confessed him as Lord? See, true disciples admit they are sinners, believe in Jesus as their Savior, and submit to his Lordship. True disciples set their minds on the things of God. Peter's earlier confession, it will prove to be a true one, despite his failures, like, I don't know, rebuking Jesus, as we just saw two seconds later. No one's perfect. But you see, Peter's fruitfulness in his life, his continuing to mature and grow up in the faith, is one of the many assurances that he has. One of the things that proves his belief in and commitment to Jesus. What about you? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? And if you have, does your life prove that confession to be true? Usually when I start talking about, has somebody really followed Jesus, I I get two responses that are are really, I think, often confused with genuine repentance and belief. They are praying a a prayer with someone or or coming forward at a church service like this. I think, sadly, sometimes people do that, and that's all they ever do, and they they think, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, but they don't have Jesus. why Jesus calls us not to look at praying a prayer or walking an aisle for the assurance of our salvation, but to the fruit of our lives. The New New Testament tells us to look at the holiness of our conduct, the love that we have for others, and the soundness of our doctrine as the indicators of our salvation. How do we assure ourselves of our salvation? I'm going to give you a list of things here in a minute. Getting ahead of myself, though. Let me ask, do you have fruit? Do you seek to know God more? One evidence that you uh, know God or have, are in the process of coming to know more about him is that you truly confess and follow Jesus. Confession first, and then you followed him into baptism. Baptism does this th- neat thing where it draws a clear line between who is in the church and who is in the world. It makes clear who belongs to God's kingdom. I mean, fundamentally, it's a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Baptism is a little bit like uh, when a restaurant does poorly, gets sold to a new owner, and uh, the new owner, one of the first things they do is they put that sign up in the window that says, under new management. Baptism is a public declaration that you are under new management, that you're under Jesus' management. Maybe, maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe you want to think of it like a, like a military uniform. Like, why here? He, he goes to military school, and so he has to wear that, that sweet military uniform, like, all the time. A kid tried to sneak out of there this morning without his white shirt on, and they were like, nope, I don't care if it's dirty, borrow another one. Because they want everybody to know this is the, the military school. Same thing in our military. This is somebody that's in the military when they're in their uniform. It identifies them. 
When someone's dressed in full military gear, we know that they belong to the, ser- the service. Baptism is a little bit like trading in your civilian outfit for a military uniform. It identifies you with Jesus. Baptism eliminates deception so that no one can fool themselves into thinking they are saved when they are not. I mean, no one thinks they belong to the military because they visited an army surplus store and got some cool stuff. Maybe some do, but... See, baptism is one of the first obediences of the Christian life. It's only for true disciples. Only for those that have professed with their mouths and believed in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. It identifies us as members of the community called the people of God, the church. This means that an unbaptized Christian, if you haven't been baptized upon a profession of faith, you're walking in disobedience to God's command. You should question if you've really understood and believed the gospel. Jesus said, repent and be baptized. Genuine repentance is followed by the obedience of baptism and the continued growth in the Christian life. Christian, have you been obedient in this? Have you been baptized upon a profession of faith? If not, will you? Deny yourself. Confess and deny yourself and be baptized. Non-Christian, will you repent, believe, and be baptized? Will you change your business model and put yourself in a place where you're under new management? Will you put on the uniform of the kingdom? God's mysterious work of regeneration leads us to make a true confession of faith which is exemplified in baptism and lived out in community with God's people. This is another evidence that you have truly denied yourself and followed Jesus. It's your participation in the local church. It's your relationships with God's people. You know, because fellowship in the local church is the primary way that God purifies us and makes us more like himself. He's determined to use his church as the primary instrument by which his sons and daughters are trained in holiness. Participation in the local church is the catalyst for Christian growth. If you do not actively belong to or participate in a church, you are in sin. If you are denying the church access and authority in your life, then you are denying Christ. Because you are denying his command. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. A Christian divorced from the bride of Christ, the church, has likely separated him or herself from the bridegroom, who is Christ himself. That plays out too in regular life. Like I couldn't be friends with Chris if I hated his wife. Let me say it this way. Christianity without commitment to community is crap. It's bankrupt. It's false. It's a false religion that we've dressed up and called Christian. It doesn't require anything of us. Individuals who isolate themselves from community give opportunity to the evil one and are submitting to the things of man rather than the things of God. 
person that says they love Jesus but hate the church, can't really be around Christians, deceive themselves. After all, 1 John 4.19 tells us, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Are you being obedient to Jesus' command to participate in the local church, to belong? When we live out the biblical vision of the church, we will hold one another accountable. We'll encourage one another. We'll rejoice with one another. We will weep with one another. We'll help one another. We'll spur one another on. We'll enjoy one another. We'll assure one another of our salvation and of our relationship with Jesus Christ and a myriad of other things. But most of all, we will be loving. All these things, all these other things we do find their root in Christian love. The life of God and the soul of the church, our love for God and for one another is the primary way we display the glory of God. Every church, every local church, this church functions together to create a beautiful mosaic pattern to display God's glory. Our church, you, me, we're supposed to be a display of the glory of God. The culture of this community Our time together ought to be a foretaste of heaven. Our covenantal marriage to Christ is evidenced in our covenantal commitment to his bride. Our love for God is showcased in our love for one another. Our love for God and for one another assures us of our salvation, glorifies God, and makes the gospel beautiful to those that are lost. What is the the testimony of or your witness to the lost if they looked at your attitude towards the church. That's a little convoluted. Let me try to say it differently. If somebody looked at your life and you were never in the church, what would your life be saying to them about Jesus and about his bride? We are to love one another. Selfless, humble, Christ-like love is to be the signature of those who claim to be members of God's kingdom. Love is to be the signature of Jesus' people. So let me ask you, how do you sign your name? How do you know you've denied yourself and followed Jesus? You have your mind set on the things of God and are in loving community with him and his bride. In submission to the will of God, you've confessed Jesus as Lord, have been baptized into his church upon a profession of faith. You fellowship with his people and participate on his mission, displaying his glory through the proclamation of his gospel, through word and deed throughout all nations. Christian, this text forces you to test the genuineness of your faith. What's in your hands? The things of the world? Or a cross. It also ought to cause you to rejoice in the goodness of the good news. He saved you. The king took a cross so that you might receive a crown of life. Non-Christian, this text forces you to consider who Jesus is. Friends, will you live and die with the world or die and live with Jesus? What is your mind set on? How does your life answer Jesus' question? 
Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that even though sometimes preachers like me get a little bit long-winded, that you hold our attention spans and that you speak to us through your word, which is able to shape our lives and, and, and help us to be made more into your image and help us to fall more in love with you. Thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful. We thank you that even crumbs from your table satisfy dogs like us. We thank you that even though sometimes we seek our own agenda rather than your agenda, you forgive us, that you correct us. Father, help us to deny ourselves and to follow you, to be obedient from our confession, to be obedient in in our baptism, to be obedient in being in community with one another. Father, help us to become and practice what you've declared us to be, holy. We thank you for the cross that we are justified before you and that in this life we get to work towards becoming more like you. Father, we, we love you this morning. We praise you and we give you all the glory. And we pray these things by the precious blood of Christ because there's power in it. Amen.